so I wanted, I wanted to share a little cartoon with you. So I saw this recently, and it made me think of our the B-I-B-L-E series, Is That the Book for Me, which we're concluding today. For those of you in the back who perhaps can't read it, on, on the board it says, Churches and Christian Movements Throughout History. And it starts in 1 AD, and it splinters and splinters and splinters and splinters. And then it's the, the teacher says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. <laughs> to which one of the students says, uh, Jesus is so lucky to have us. <laughs> and you can see on, on the, on the uh, uh, door, it's membership class. <laughs> so uh, we officially don't have membership at Oasis. And so you don't, you don't have to necessarily uh, learn this particular thing. Um, but this uh, cartoon, I think, is an example of one of the reasons that we wanted to have the BIBLE series. That at Oasis, uh, we believe in the essentials unity and the non-essentials diversity and in all things charity. We believe the Bible is true and trustworthy and that it is the kind of primary literary source that, that God uses and has used and will continue to use to kind of help kind of shape us. But we also believe that it's, it's not so simple and that there are times that it's difficult to understand and to figure out how to apply it in our contemporary world. And we want to make sure that we do the best that we can do to live faithfully uh, with God uh, in the power of the Spirit, um, in, in tune with what's happening. And so we had the series, and throughout the series, We've been collecting questions, and we said that at the end, that Phil and I would do our best to address these. And so we're going to go through those questions that you submitted, but I want you to know that it's not that we think we have all the answers. Like you asked the questions, and here are the answers, and now you know what to believe. Right. It's that we think that we're all working out our own salvation in fear and trembling, and we're trying to do this together as opposed to doing it apart. In our service last week, which was on praying the scriptures, it was said that the most important thing is that we connect with God. And we believe that. That the scriptures are not an end unto themselves, but they're a means to an end. They're a means to help us connect with God. If, if our interpretations of scripture are not connecting us with God, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's only to the degree that we get to know God and love God more, more faithfully, more deeply, that that, that works. And so... One, one last thing before we get started. Uh, throughout the series, we used those uh, videos. They were animated, and they told different things. That was called the Bible Project. They have lots and lots of more videos, and we would endorse it. They're, they're well done. They're all about three to five minutes long. They talk about different themes, and they also kind of go book by book talking about the Bible. So if you, if you found those helpful, you can find them. Just Google it, thebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebiblebibl
uh, for the advancement of the kingdom, for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul talks extensively about this in various areas, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, and, and, and really tells us that uh, if you're not using your spiritual gift, if they're just lying dormant, that that's not God's plan for you. So I would encourage you, uh, you know, there's different gifts. Uh, scripture indicates maybe 23, 24, but that really isn't an exhaustive list. That's mm-hmm. really just a, kind of a cursory list, a gift of encouragement, the gift of helps, the gift of teaching, uh, the gift of compassion or mercy, which many of you in this room have. And uh, these gifts are, when they're working like they should, they build the body up. They help us function the way that God wants the church to function. So I would just say, Robbie, if anyone has any questions about spiritual gifts, we can always refer them to some great books about that. But also a great course at our church is called Shape. And Shape is designed to help you discover your God-given shape, your design. And part of that course is spiritual gifts. It talks about your heart, your passion, your experiences, uh, your personality. But one part of that course is also about spiritual gifts. It gets much more in-depth. Uh, but I would just say that our church embraces the concept and the idea of spiritual gifts uh, completely. Amen. What about child dedication? What's that? Well, interesting enough, we're, we just announced that today, that next week we're going to offer child dedication. Historically, in the Christian church, there's been a couple of approaches to uh, child dedication um, or, or child baptism. Uh, just curious, how many of you... Um, were baptized as an infant. You went through infant baptism. Oh, wow. wow, amazing. How many of you remember that moment? Okay. How many of you were dedicated as a child? Like your family dedicated? Yeah, see, it's just about half and half, really. I Pretty didn't amazing. get dedicated. Yeah, I know, I'm I heard baptized. this story. Okay. Yeah, bless your heart. Uh, how many of you didn't have either one? Let's just find out who's with Robbie. Okay, great, all right. Um, well, we don't can all worry. be dedicated next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let my wife do it. Robin will hold the babies, yes. Here's the thing. Uh, You know, this is one of those issues that that in Christianity, different denominations, different churches have kind of differed on what's the best approach, what's the right approach. The bottom line is, is that um, taken from the story in the Old Testament of Hannah, who dedicated uh, her son Samuel back to the Lord, child dedication is really that. It's more of a parent dedication. It's more of saying... We realize, God, that the child that you've given us is a gift from you. We have responsibilities, we have privileges, and we have a great, great task of being parents to this child. And we need your help. We need to, to um, dedicate them back to you, give them back to you, and say, help us, God. Uh, be parents of grace and love and nurture them uh, in the right direction. So child dedication does that. Let me say this, infant baptism uh, does that as well. Don't, don't feel like if you were baptized as an infant is that somehow different or negates it. We kind of see baptism at Oasis as being a sacrament that follows a person's decision to follow Christ. And of course, as a child, you can't make that personal decision for yourself. You're too young. You don't know what's happening. You don't remember it. Uh, so we encourage people to be baptized. If you were baptized as an infant, uh, I would encourage you, not, not mandatory, but I would just encourage you to consider as an adult being baptized to take that step and kind of solidify that decision to follow Christ in your heart. Is it necessary? Uh, Oasis would say no, it's not necessary for salvation. Uh, It just kind of helps you take that next step in your journey. So next week, uh, you'll see child dedication, and we'll talk more about it next week, I'm sure. All right, sounds good. 
So my question for you, Robbie, you got a good one to start with. Okay. What the heck is up with the book of Leviticus? And why don't we practice those crazy laws today? We had to edit that one a little bit. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, which, which is really kind of what um, uh, the West Wing clip it, was it getting is. at. Yeah. It is. So there are a couple of questions that we had that get at these types of things, which basically I think is asking, you know, if, if it was three or four or 5,000 years ago in a different place in a different culture, does, what do these kind of teachings, how do they apply in our contemporary world? And is, is some of this having to do with the, the ancient Israelites or the Hebrews, and does it all necessarily apply to us? Well, there's plenty of things that, of course, we don't practice, right? It's quite obvious uh, we don't uh, stone people for wearing clothing of two different types of fabric, uh, which, was, which was mentioned in the clip. Um, there's, a, there's a passage that says you should not uh, cook a kid, meaning a, a small goat, <laughs> uh, in its mother's milk. Uh, which is why today in kosher settings they don't mix milk products and, and meat products. Um, but the, the, the challenge is what kind of what was the purpose of these things and, and what did it do even in its original setting? And, and that's, that's, that's pretty complex. Um, it had something to do with kind of identifying the group of Israel, uh, uh, differentiating them kind of from their, the group that they were from. And then the question is, would God want to differentiate them just to keep them separate? Or was God differentiating them so they could become the light of the world? Uh, I would connect it to the idea in Corinthians about being unequally yoked. Are we not to be yoked uh, with the world so that we can just be saved and God can save us and damn them? Are we not to be yoked with the world so that we could be with Christ who is in the world? Right? So, so that... Uh, the laws that deal with separation has something to do with us living a different way so that we can be in the world with Christ who is with the whole world, right? Christ is not kind of differentiating himself from others. And so this is difficult. I mean, at the very least, I hope you can appreciate the fact that we are picking and choosing, like all of us. And sometimes there's groups of us to do it, and sometimes we do it individually, but it is a bit unavoidable, and we need to give kind of more grace, a bit more kind of latitude, I think, uh, for each other, uh, which is one of the reasons why we say so often in the essentials unity and the non-essentials diversity, and that last bit is not insignificant. In all things charity, mm -hmm. right? So give each other a break a bit, and, and um, we'll, we'll figure out our, our way forward. Uh, but whatever you do, um, don't wear polyester. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Or we will stone you, yes. Yeah. Okay, Rob. Uh, you mentioned the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I did. When did the church stop relying on this model yeah, and you may we, want to just briefly explain it. Yeah, so two weeks ago, uh, there was a sermon that talked about the, the role of Scripture in, in context, right? So we talked about it being the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so one of the things they say is, you know, uh, faith alone. But of course, we know it's faith with works, according to James. And they say grace alone. But we realize with Paul, it's in Jesus, for that matter. It's grace and the law. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my 
commandments, my laws. It's, uh, it says Christ alone, but we realize that Christ prays to the Father in the Spirit. And so, right. And it's Scripture alone, but it's Scripture with tradition, reason, and experience. Um, and so the church hasn't stopped doing that. In fact, I think we're doing it all the time, like all of us. We might not always be aware that we're doing it, right. but I think we are doing it, that when we come to Scripture, we're realizing that it has something to do with what I believed and what I've experienced and something to do with what the church has taught. Um, and th those things are going together. Um, so it, one particular part of the church, uh, the Wesleyan tradition, so the Free Methodists, the United Methodists, the Nazarene, uh, the, the, the Church of Christ, there's one part of the tradition that might be more explicit uh, with that model, but, but really, it's a model that's being used across the various Christian traditions. Yeah, good answer. Okay, here's Great. a doozy. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Is there any other way? Expound, please. Sure. Right, so um, this is, this is an important question. This kind of comes from the Gospel of John. And it has to do with, you know, how does Christianity or Jesus kind of relate to the other faiths of the world? And so part of the question is, all right, I'm talking fast as I can. Right, we might not get to all of them. Thank you for your, your, your rolling motion hands. Um, so um, now you broke my train of thought. So look, historically... This is how we understand that God has worked in time and history. That Jesus came and lived and taught and healed and loved and served and died and was resurrected and ascended and sits on the throne and will come back. Could God have done something different? Well, I guess God's God, so God could have, but this is what's happened. Now, how does that affect the world? I think it affects all of the world. And so... Some people might read that and see it as being uh, kind of exclusivist. Other people might read it and see it as being inclusivist. That is that um, because Jesus has lived, suffered, died, and been resurrected, things have changed, and now the Spirit of God is working not just within the walls of the church, but outside. Uh, through culture, through all these other experiences, and we would say drawing people to God. So, so yes, it, Jesus is the one. Um, but but there, God, the Spirit, is doing other things in this world to kind of draw people to Jesus. And so we've got to be careful not to dismiss them um, out of hand because I think God's working in them to kind of draw them this way. All right, I'll, I'll try and answer my questions quicker from now on. This next one's for <laughs> Phil. In many religions, past and present, there are references to the practices of sacrificing the blood of living things, animals or people. Uh, this is one of the biggest turnoffs to me. Where is the love for all his creatures? Wow. Um, how many of you are animal lovers? Yeah. Well, this is something that really bothers a lot of people. So let me, let me try to succinctly say this. Um, tribes, civilization, think back in ancient, ancient days. We have a hard time with this because we live in such a modern time. But in those early days of mankind, there were tribes, there were groups of people, and they all, all of them, 
had different gods for different things. Uh, there was a god of crops, there might be a god of fertility, there might be the god, the moon god, the sun god, etc. And really what it came down to was people had the concept and the idea that they had to appease or to please these gods. And it just was amazing how often the gods were angry at them. Okay? If a crop didn't grow correctly, God was angry. If a woman couldn't have a child, God was angry. So they, those folks, determined that we need to do something to appease the gods, to get them on our side. And they kind of lived in that, that mode. We can see this in just about any civilization you want to study. So this is where blood sacrifices really came. People trying to appease their gods, trying to offer uh, sacrifices. However, the God of Israel comes along and they begin to tell stories and they begin to have circumstances happen that are quite different than these other civilizations, other tribes. For example, the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up the mountain to be sacrificed, I think would have been very common for people to hear that kind of story. The difference is in how the story ends. The story would almost always end with the child being sacrificed, right? But in the story of Abraham, Isaac is saved. There is a ram in the thicket, and he is spared. As if to say, listen, your God may be this wrathful, vengeful, capricious God who just wants to strike people down, but the true God, the one true God, is a God of grace and is of a God of deliverance and is a God of love. And it was God using that system, that man-made system, to reveal himself and to move things forward as far as human, the human evolution of understanding God and understanding who they were in God's sight. So I don't feel, now there are people who disagree with me, I'm sure, I don't feel that God ever intended for men and women to sacrifice their uh, firstborn or their children or even the creation that God has given us uh, in terms of offering sacrifices to him. Now, Robbie, you want to add anything? Well, I, I just say that this, this idea of, of progress is an important one, right? So, so, yeah, there was a time when there was some sacrifices, but we don't sacrifice now, right? Right. I mean, it seems to be, in the end, God's plan was for that type of stuff not to be, right? So it might have taken us a while to get here, but I'm hoping no one at Oasis sacrifices any animals as an act of worship to God. Um, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. How about this one? Should we be concerned with returning to the design before the fall of man? Or is that possible or no longer relevant? Right. I like that you said fall of man, not fall of woman. Right. Uh, so... So yes and no, right? I think, I think that the creation in some ways was this good thing, uh, good but not perfect, I would say. Um, and so there are examples of how things were created to be that because of the fall, because of sin, things are broken and damaged and they don't work out. But I wouldn't say that where we're headed is simply a return to Eden. I think where we're headed in the new heaven and new earth, the next life, is value added. It's more than Eden. So, so it's like, it's all those good things that were originally created uh, with, with peace and harmony and equality 
except it's even better than that. So we don't simply know God as creator, we know God as creator and as redeemer. Right. And so it's, so it's, it's like uh, the original paradise, but it's more than that um, because we, we, are, we now know right from wrong and we do what's right, which I, is how I see is where we're headed anyway. All right, what about, let's talk about women. Um, let's talk about them. Yeah, so what about where it says in the New Testament that women should be silent in the church? I'm really confused about women lead pastors and leaders, worship pastors and leaders, kids pastors, women even speaking in the service or praying over the con- congregation. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> Actually, I'm perfectly okay with this passage. Um, you're supposed to laugh there. But. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I have to tell you, um, this, is a troubling, this is a troubling thing for a lot of people. And um, one of the things you understand that when Paul writes about this, uh, this passage of women being silent in the church, a lot of it has to do with disunity in the body, and the body being kind of broken up and, and in turmoil. But also, I think Paul just had a real problem, to be very frank with you. Uh, I think he had some personal issues going on. Uh, I think he wrote from that perspective, uh, and I think we just need to be honest about that, that, that um, this is more Paul speaking uh, than it is uh, uh, God speaking. I, I do believe that. I think he had some real, real issues that he needed to get past, and, and culturally speaking, I think a lot of it was driven by the culture. I think he, had a, he, he may have had some issues with women in leadership, but this is why it's very important when you look at the Bible, to take a bird's eye, big picture view. Because if you go back from the very beginning to the very end, you will see the tremendous role that women have always played in the kingdom of God and in the history of mankind or womankind. For example, in the Old Testament, we see women like Esther, women like Deborah. In the New Testament, you see women like Phoebe, and women like Priscilla, others, Eunice and Lois, who are prominent in the early church. Uh, and these weren't backseat you know, pew sitters. These were women who were powerful, powerful leaders in the body of Christ. So here's the deal. Okay? Uh, I would just say to you, look at the totality of Scripture, especially when you get confused about an issue. Go to Jesus and see how Jesus treated women. See how Jesus approached women. And I think that will help you a lot in understanding why women are very vital in the body of Christ. They should have equal, equal um, function, uh, equal access to ministry, uh, just like a man should. And at Oasis, I'll just say this to you. One of the things that we did from day one, way back when, 21 years ago, which was revolutionary for the, for the denomination that we were a part of, was we allowed women to be elders in our church from day one. Yeah. And the building shook, and the earth was quaking, okay? But somehow, it's worked out really, really, really well, okay? So I would just say, yay, women. Yeah, so I, I would just kind of add that to a little bit. I mean, speaking of leaders uh, disagreeing a bit, I might be a little softer on Paul than, than you were, Phil. Um, only to say that... Um, it seems that they were coming in that whole idea of process of revelation and movement, so that they were coming to this idea, as he says in Galatians and in Colossians, we're neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but they didn't know what that meant. Like, oh my goodness, 
what would it mean if we actually started to live like we were originally created to be equal and we weren't living under the structures of sin where we had the kind of gender hierarchy? And they couldn't quite figure it all out. And so they were kind of trying to work through those, those rules. And I, I definitely see the trajectory of it kind of moving towards equality. Um, but anyway, that's... I'm just trying to disagree hard no, with you. But. No, I, yeah. I'm fine with that. All I right. like Paul. I just don't yeah. think he's Jesus. So. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. Um, you can send me an email later. Yeah, neither, <laughs> neither did Peter when, when Paul called Peter a hypocrite. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, why, uh, Phil, when the Bible provides lists of genealogies, are almost all who are listed males? Uh, they must have had daughters, right? Uh, was it an issue of land ownership? Well, that could be a, a possibility. I, I think the genealogy thing is such a cool thing in Scripture. When you look at, at genealogies like in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, uh, think, think of it th this way. Um, those genealogies, first of all, do include women. They're, they're not exclusively to men. And some of the women that are included in there are some pretty interesting characters mm -hmm. uh, from, the, from the stories. Rahab. Uh, and her story, uh, others that are mentioned there, kind of, you would think, why would, why would they put these in? But, but think of it this way. Um, in those traditions, um, as they're passing down their heritage and their, their lineage from one generation to another, it was very important for them to say, um, you know, we're making progress, that we're, that we're keeping the faith, that we're staying faithful to God. So to them, when they read these genealogies, this was inspiring to them. This gave them hope that there was a future. This gave them hope that God was going to use them. And when you look at the names that are there, we don't understand them. We don't connect with them. We don't see them and know who they were. But believe me, those people did. And so when it said that this one beget that one who beget that one, and this one stayed faithful, and this one stayed faithful, and this one stayed faithful, that was very, very inspiring to the people in those days. So why was it male? Well, the best we can understand, and there's a lot of different theories on this, but I think the best we can understand is that early on, different tribes uh, understood and thought very simply, when a man is with a woman, she gets pregnant. So they assumed that the seed must come from the man, that therefore it must be a male thing. So they used uh, the male names uh, to pass down that lineage from one to the other. Uh, we now have a better understanding of biology. We have an understanding of how things work. They did not. Uh, so today, we might pass down our genealogy in a different way, uh, more, more, exclusive, more inclusive of both genders. Uh, but I think that's, in a nutshell, what was going on. Yeah, just so one last thing on the role of women and men in, in church and family and society. If you're interested in kind of further reading, I would highly recommend, without any reservation, Gilbert Bilizikian's Beyond Sex Roles. So Beyond Sex Roles. I know the title's not going to think, oh, I want to read that. But if you're interested in this topic and you want to know kind of a Christian, particularly even an evangelical Christian, uh, look at it, I, I would highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. uh, Gilbert Bilizikian's Beyond Sex Roles. Okay. Well... Here we go. Go for it. How do we reconcile the apparent condemnation of homosexuality in the New Testament with the scientific fact that people don't choose 
to be gay or just choose to be gay. Right. Let me first say, in, in our culture, I don't know if there's anything more divisive. And one of the things that we try very hard for here at Oasis is not to be divisive, right? We want to come around uh, the gospel. We want to come around Jesus. We want to come around our God who uh, forgives and has mercy and grace for us so that we can try and live and be as faithful as we can. So let's keep that in mind. Uh, secondly, uh, I want you to know that there are kind of evangelical Christians, really smart ones, who disagree uh, over how to interpret these, these passages. So there's three in the New Testament that would deal with such an issue, uh, one in Romans, one in Corinthians, one in the, Paul's letters to Timothy. And so um, as people try to kind of navigate um, uh, this issue, uh, we need a lot more kind of grace and a lot more um, patience, I think, uh, uh, with each other. So uh, again, there's, there's lots of people that, uh, books I might recommend. Matthew Stadford's um, uh, The Biology of Sin. Once again, not a great title, <laughs> but uh, a, a great uh, book. He's a Baptist guy. He's a, a neurological uh, psychologist, and he studies what's going on in the brain. Um, he used to teach at Baylor. Uh, the Assemblies of God brought him in to kind of train their educators. So, um, but he says, like, you know, biologically, this is a thing. Like, we, we're not going to argue about this anymore. Here's evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence. So, so what then do we do with such things, right? And again, there's a lot of, a lot of people to kind of go to. Um, uh, one of the people I greatly respect and often kind of call on uh, when, I, when, I, when I prepare sermons is a guy named Tom Wright, and he's on one issue of this. And uh, someone else that I have a lot of respect for is an ethicist named David Gushing, and he's on another issue of this. Um, and that uh, just a few things, I mean, I can't, there's no way that I can answer this for you in the amount of time that we have. Uh, but, uh, but I would encourage you uh, to, to do, do some reading and uh, to get to know people who, who kind of feel differently or experience differently than you do and, and, and to, find, to find a way forward, right, where we're not um, necessarily just adopting what our culture has said, oh, here's the issue that we should fight about, right? Um, because Paul wrote a lot, and, and Matthew wrote a lot, and Mark, and John, and Luke, and, and, and frankly, when I hear people say, well, well, Scripture talks a lot about this, uh, I'm like, well, no, not a lot, you know? New Testament's pretty long, there's like three verses that talk about it. It's not like it's like the most prominent thing that's there. So if we're making something prominent that's not prominent in Scripture, let's, let's keep that in the realm of, um, uh, in, in the non-essentials uh, diversity, right? Um, so I guess that's, that's my short answer. Now, we will be at the picnic uh, uh, sooner than later, hope, according to some in the back of the room. Um, uh, and I would be happy. I'd be happy to kind of carry on, you know, the conversation and, and as we kind of, you know, love each other and, and work through these things together. Don't be asking me any questions about that at the picnic, all right? I'm strictly there to eat food and fellowship and kickball. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm, all right, just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Yeah. You, right. can, you, 
You can ask me about the next one, though. We'll talk about All right, this where one. does it specifically talk about practicing abstinence before marriage and then marrying one person? I mean, I agree it's best in theory, but I can't seem to find where in the Bible specifically says wait until marriage until you kiss or have sex, etc. <laughs> if you could particularly address the etc. Et yeah, yeah. I want to thank the teenager who turned this question in <laughs> for having the guts to ask it uh, when nobody else did. Let me say this. Uh, the, the word that, that primarily is used in the Bible for this is a word that we've, we've used many times in our, you know, in our life. We, we, we use the term fornication, okay? Sex outside uh, the bonds of marriage. Um, so when you see that term, in a, in a very loose way, that's what, what it's referring to. Here's what I, I say to folks uh, today. I've, I've counseled literally probably 200 couples in a premarital um, situation before they're married. Almost always this subject comes up uh, about their experiences before marriage. Um, and I want to I, I say this. This is where the wisdom of the Bible is so, so strong. Uh, there are so many things that sex before marriage does in your relationship. One of the things it does is it takes the focus off of the other facets of your relationship. Now, we all know this to be true, if we're honest, that once you take that step into that intimate relationship, it becomes a driving force in your relationship. It just does. Uh, believe me, would you rather uh, sit and talk for an hour or two, or would you rather make out on mom and dad's couch? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, would you rather talk about your family of origin and what it was like growing up in your family, or would you rather, you know, what, okay? <laughs> believe me, it becomes a dominant force, and this is the danger of it, because then the other facets of your relationship take a back seat, and you don't really focus on the relationship, Okay. I would also say this, once you cross that line and you make that connection with that person, you will be connected to them for the rest of your life in some way, shape, or form. It is not just a physical act. It is much more than that. So I think that's where the wisdom of the Bible comes in. We have made it more about, you know, you're going to burn forever if, if you, you know, make this decision. I think we need to back up from that and see a bigger picture. But there's really a lot of wisdom in what the Bible teaches. And also, there's a lot of grace for folks who may have made that uh, step and crossed that line. Uh, and now they're focusing on the relationship as a whole. So what I would say to you is don't be shamed. Don't beat yourself up over that. Uh, but uh, ask God to give you wisdom about it. Very good. How should the modern church deal with divorce? I mean, based on the New Testament scriptures that say getting remarried is adultery. Wow. Um, okay, uh, real quick. In Jesus' day, there were two camps of people. There was a camp that was uh, kind of liberal on divorce. They said it was not just sexual immorality, but if, if your partner had any cause, uh, they could divorce anything. If your wife burnt uh, their food, a husband could divorce his wife. There was another camp. That's in writing. Yes. Uh, in, there's another camp that said, no, 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 sexual immorality, that's the reason. So when you look at the passage in, uh, where they approach Jesus and they say, Jesus, uh, let's talk about divorce. Moses said, you know, this and this, and you can, you know, he gave people a certificate of divorce. 
Um, which camp are you in? That's what they're basically asking Jesus. And Jesus said, well, if you want to ask me, I'm in the camp of sexual immorality. I don't think that you can just divorce your spouse for any reason. It's very important to understand the concept because they're trying to trap Jesus in that conversation. What I would say to you is divorce is a lot more complicated than, than that, okay? Um, I think there's, there's clear teaching in Scripture that if there's abandonment, if there's abuse, if there's sexual immorality, and I would say a, a pattern of sexual immorality even, uh, that uh, just because someone um, commits adultery doesn't mean a marriage has to end, okay? We're right. We understand that. Just because that happens doesn't mean a marriage has to end. But there are occasions when because of, and, and God talked about this specifically with Moses, hard-heartedness sets in. He said, I do not want my people to develop hard, bitter hearts. For this reason, I would be willing to grant a certificate of divorce in these cases. And I would say to you, if you've gone through divorce, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Mm -hmm. It's brutal. It is, it is painful. If you haven't, if you haven't, um, kiss your spouse today and tell them how happy you are that you're not divorced because it is a very difficult thing. So the church, I think, needs to be uh, full of grace and full of understanding uh, that it's not as simple as people like to make it out to be. Sounds good. Thanks. Uh, if there is no hell, wow, well, if there is no hell, hallelujah, uh, how can God be a God of justice? All right, so we are running a little low on time. I'd say this. I don't know of anybody who says there's not a hell. Uh, even Rob Bell, um, in his book, um, Love Wins, didn't argue that there wasn't a hell. He just argued that people didn't stay there forever, uh, which is a particular Christian view that some Christians have held. And the whole development of hell, this goes back to the idea of early thought, later thought, developed thought. No one, no one in, in ancient Israelite uh, thought had any idea of life after death. They, it slowly developed into this idea of Sheol, the land of shadows, which developed more in what we call the intertestamental period because of the Greeks and the Romans. So they had this idea of Hades and, and you know, the, uh, you know, the devil with a, a pitchfork kind of view, right? And then that has been shaped in my own life by Sylvester and Tweety Bird, right? <laughs> Because, you know, he's always, Sylvester's always dying and going to hell. <laughs> and then coming back because he's got nine lives. Um, so, so when Jesus talked about it, uh, he, he used the term Gehenna, which means just the valley of Hinnom, which is a valley that kind of hugs Mount Zion to the west and curves down. Uh, and it's where they burnt their trash. And so he's, he's making reference to a particular place, like they all knew. So when I take students to study in Israel... Some days I'm like, hey, this was a long day. We went through hell and back. Um, because literally, we would have walked through where Jesus called hell and walked back. Um, but I'll say this about God's justice. Uh, how can God be just if there's not kind of ultimate kind of judgment? Justice for God, I believe, is always restorative and never solely punitive that God doesn't need to act justly to kind of protect God's integrity of justice, but God is like a, a loving parent who will exact justice, but God's exacting of justice is for the purpose of restoration, that his, his goal is to restore us. Now, sometimes we might kick and scream and resist that, 
Uh, and, and maybe we can do that forever, right? In which case, in which case we, we kind of live in hell, right? So um, I, would, I would recommend, again, another recommendation. It's a novel. It's, it's not a um, kind of a straightforward theological account. But C.S. Lewis's little novel, like 90 pages, called The Great Divorce, which is actually not about divorce. Right. It's about uh, heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. But, but you should give it a read. It's like 90 pages, and it, it's, it's Lewis's take on how we should understand these things. And, and it's, it's one that I could, I could yeah. affirm. Classic. Yeah. yeah. Is everybody still okay? Can we do a few more? Everybody, everybody good? Okay. All right, so we'll, we'll try and work fast here. Why does it seem to be such a struggle at times, Phil, for God to communicate with us and for us to communicate with God? I think because um, we're not God. Mm-hmm, that's true. <laughs> um, we're, we're humans. Uh, we, we love to communicate verbally. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, verbal communication is not... Uh, the only form of communication and sometimes it's not even the best form of communication um, and if you don't believe that then get married okay? mm-hmm. because uh, even married couples who see each other every day have trouble communicating with each other I think it's part of the great mystery of God that he does not speak to us uh, audibly at least most of us he doesn't speak to audibly but there are other ways that God reveals himself mm-hmm. and I think it's a powerful powerful thing that we have that opportunity to connect with God other than just hearing this voice and you know having this conversation back and forth whether it's through the spirit uh, guiding us whether it's through creation uh, speaking to us whether it's through his word whatever I think it's it's a part of the mystery of, of God that as of yet in this life we don't get to say hey God what's up yeah and I think in terms of ways of knowing, uh, faith is the way that God wants us to know God. And maybe we wouldn't have chosen faith. Maybe we would have chosen certainty. But, but God didn't choose certainty. God chose faith. And as one theologian said, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Right? And so to have faith, the things that you really know, like you know your spouse loves you, you know you love your children, is not that sometimes the thing you're certain about in the same way as you're certain that two plus two is four. Right. It's a, different, it's a deeper, I would say, way of, way of knowing. Uh, two two uh, questions here uh, from one of our younger uh, members. Um, does God have a wife or son or daughter? Um, short answer, uh, Scripture seems to indicate God is spirit, so God doesn't have a physical body and uh, doesn't have a gender. Uh, I was actually texted. Someone texted me during this conversation that we're having right now and told me to be very careful about using God's name just in a masculine form. Uh, so I want to say this. I agree. I think, I think we need to be very careful about only using God's name in a masculine form because God is not just a male. God is much more than that. And uh, gender uh, inclusivity, some people say, well, that just seems to be kind of you know, trendy and progressive and all this, but really and true when you think about it, God has both qualities, masculine and feminine, uh, and it's okay. So I know some of you get, you know, you hackles up when you hear somebody sing about God, our mother, you know, and all this, uh, but just stop and think about it for a second. He has both those qualities, so why can't God uh, be both of those, especially in a world that has been dominated by males? Oh, by good. the way, it was your daughter that sent me the text. Yes, yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I did not bring my yeah. phone on stage. And she didn't so think I, I would call her out on stage, uh -huh. but I just did. Yeah, okay. I left my phone off stage, so I can't take your text messages. Uh, yeah, so this, this is, I'll take this one, but this is another one uh, from the same, same young, young uh, believer. Does God eat spiritually uh, on our godly souls? Uh, well, I, I think to, to Phil's comment on the first one, God is spirit. And so, and so God, God doesn't have need to consume. So God, God's not eating, and he's, he's definitely not eating us. But these are great questions. Listen, these are great questions because think about the mind of a child, how they think. Yeah. And they hear us talk about this spiritual stuff, and they're trying to reconcile these things in their mind. So I, I love these questions. I think yeah. they're, they're awesome. All right, so, so God was the first one. <laughs> this is not so much a question, <laughs> although they put the question mark at the end. So God... So, God was the first one to commit mass genocide. <laughs> Noah's Ark, question mark. Oh, wow. Again, it goes back to the issue of tribes uh, looking to their gods and saying, God, what we, what we have to do to appease you? What do we have to do to please you? What do we have to do to make things right? You need to know that the story of Noah's Ark, of someone, uh, a nation, uh, a humanity, perishing in a flood was told by just about every civilization on earth. The Sumerians told it, the Babylonians told it, the Africans told it, you name it, it's there. It's a story. Even that someone built a boat so that they could be rescued from that flood. What is different, and I think Rob Bell points this out in the book, What is the Bible, that we've been reading on Tuesday nights together, is that this story of Noah ends differently than any other story would end. It ends with God saying, this will never happen again. So whether you take the story literally, whether you take it as uh, an allegory, uh, as a story that was told, the point of the story is very important that you do not miss it. And that is that God, the God of Israel, the God, the one true God, is not the kind of God who wants to destroy this earth. He's the kind of God who wants to relate to people, who wants to save people, who wants to be in a covenant relationship, thus we have a rainbow. Makes sense, okay? So don't get caught up into the whole thing of, well, how many, you know, how could you put two animals on the boat and what do you do, you know, uh, you know how, how in the world would you even build, build a boat big enough? That's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is a God who's got a covenant relationship with his people. Very good. We only have a few more, so just bear with us and then we are going to get to the picnic. So it's to you. Oh, I'm sorry. So uh, what does God think about cremation? Uh, I don't think God thinks much about cremation. Um, but I think I understand the question. So some people are concerned, I th if I'm understanding your question, that if you get cremated, then how do you get resurrected? Or if some, is that kind of a, a wrong thing to do to a human body? Right. Well, physiologically, our atoms are changing all the time, and we're not the same person we were 10 years ago in, in terms of our, our physical selves. Uh, it's amazing the way DNA can imprint itself on, on such. So uh, people who existed, you know, 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, whatever atoms they had have long since gone on to something else. God created and God can recreate. And so it's no problem for God. That's my short answer. Good. What does the scripture mean? Truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming to his kingdom. In, coming in his kingdom. This scripture makes it sound like Jesus is saying 
The second coming was supposed to be 2,000 years ago, and Paul and the disciples seemed to think it was coming in their lifetime too. Yeah, so again, this might take me a I could I could talk about this all day. I really love this uh, subject. But my short answer is, I believe that those references in the Gospels is about ascension, not Jesus' second coming. Like, I believe the Scriptures will talk about Jesus' second coming. I just don't think these are stories of that. Uh, the, the, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. In Daniel, which is what this is referenced right. to, it's an ascension story. The Son of Man figure goes up and sits on the throne. So when Jesus quotes that verse to talk about himself, I think... He's talking about, he just predicted his death, and now he's kind of predicting his ascension. And so that we'll see the Son of Man, in, you know, coming, and interestingly enough, the Greek word also means going, in the clouds to sit on the throne, like it's the ascension. And that does take place before any of those people die. Yeah. And, and so I think that's what that was a reference to, and sometimes we just miss it. And it is a great example of taking a scripture and applying it to something and this has been going on for decades. Oh, yeah, decades we're good at it. In the church, it. yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure. Centuries. How do our 21st century beliefs differ from those of the first century Christians? For example, the Trinity, etc. Yeah. So we, we've talked about this in, in, in several ways, and that is that from the ancient Israelite into Second Temple Jewish and early Christian and on into us, this is not a seamless thing, right? The ancient folks didn't believe exactly what we believed, even if what they believed eventually produced what we believe. Um, so, example... Uh, neither Abraham nor Moses seems to be a monotheist. They seem to think that there are lots of gods and they're just worshiping this one. By the time we get to Paul, he's like, there, there's only one God. I mean, idol, what's an idol? Uh, stone, wood, metal, right? It, there's only one God. And so that, that just kind of shows this movement. Same thing with the views of hell, same things with this, some identif identification of Satan. And so what's happened, it's not as though I think that when they saw Jesus and called him Messiah, they were Trinitarians. Um, but what they did believe, right, was that something was different here and that this was, this was fulfilling a prophecy that they had had and this was expanding their under, understanding. And so what the early church was on was on this kind of same road. So the Gospel of John will say that the Spirit will come and lead us into all truth. And I think that's still happening, right? We're being led into all truth. And so the Christian kind of belief in the Trinity is not maybe something that, that the earliest folks held, certainly not anybody in the Old Testament, and, and, and just a handful of people maybe in the New Testament started to think like that. But that doesn't mean it's, it's incorrect uh, just because it was part of the journey of the process. Right, right. Um, How should we interpret Revelation? I assume they mean <laughs> yeah. the book. Uh, okay. <laughs> let, let me just say this. Robbie has a great book. He wouldn't plug himself. But he has a great book that he, he wrote about Revelations, and this is kind of Robbie's thing, as you probably know. Yeah, and it is, is kind of my specialty, so yeah. I'll just say this. The book is symbolic. It was intended to be symbolic. And if you're going to interpret it in any way that's not symbolic, you need to have a good reason for that, <laughs> right? Because symbols, like art, like dance, uh, are powerful. And if we reduce them into something simple, we'll miss the point. You don't ask a ballerina having danced a ballet, well, what does that mean? Uh, if he or she could have told you, they wouldn't have had to dance it. Um, and I think the same goes with the book. Sorry. I think the, this, the same goes with the book of Revelation. It's symbolic. And right. so 
So it takes a lot of, of, of uh, interpreting. Yeah. How do you handle alleged uh, pseudopigrapha books mm. in the New and Old Testaments? And explain that to us, what that word means. Yes. So, so, so in like the, the book of Jude, he quotes first Enoch and the Assumption of Moses, who we think were not written by Moses or Enoch. And so the question is, why would a New Testament book quote these books? And we saw, you know, like on A&E or something, the lost books of the Bible. Um, the, the point is simply this. Uh, you might hear me quote uh, uh, Tozer or, or Wright. You might hear uh, Phil uh, quote Dallas Willard, right? It doesn't mean that we think those people have written Scripture. It means we think they've written something that's valuable. And so... There were other people in the ancient world, Jewish and early Christians, who were writing good text. And just because somebody cites something doesn't mean they thought it was Scripture. It means that they thought it was true and, and, you know, and good, and so they, they cite it in, in their work. So that's, that's what's happening here. Phil here quotes Dallas Willard so often, when Hannah was younger, she thought he was a member of uh, the Godhead. <laughs> she said, it's like... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and Dallas Willard. I'm like, no, honey. That's, that's not what Phil means when he quotes him so often. He just means he has a lot of good things to say, but he's not God. Right, exactly. All right. Um, uh, last, last two. Uh, how should a Christian read or respond to biblical texts that may be harmful to certain communities of people? And how should one respond to misappropriations of biblical texts, especially misappropriations that cause harm or marginality? Okay, good question. Um, short answer, I, I would say this about reading texts in Scripture. Number one is uh, be very careful about pulling one or two Scriptures out um, by themselves uh, to build a theology or issue around. Number two, um, consider the cultural implications of the day. Remember the Bible was written by human beings who were living in their, that culture and, and speaking to issues in that day and that time, that would, in an amazing way, eventually speak to us about some of those same issues in our day. Uh, but consider the cultural implications of it because it's very important. And last but not least, I think when you, when you get confused, uh, when all else fails, go back and look at Jesus, look at the way he interacted, look at the way that he spoke and taught and, and lived, and I think you'll be able to say, okay, this is how we should treat people and how we should not marginalize people uh, just, just because we pull one or two scriptures and misappropriate that. Yeah, and so the last question, which I think in a way you've already answered, inspired by an all-seeing and all-knowing God, why is there so much symbolism and so much is left open to interpretation? Mm -hmm. Which we addressed somewhat there, and I think we addressed it earlier, that, that any, any talk we have about God is an accommodation. Right? Any, any words you say about God is, is, by, is by analogy. Uh, there's no description that we have of God that's complete. Uh, St. Augustine said to his congregation, why are you so frustrated that you don't understand what we're talking about? Because if you understood it, it would not be God. So I think we can know God truly, but I don't think we know God fully. Mm. And I think that has to do with our finitude and our capacity of knowing which brings us back to kind of why we had the series to begin with. Um, the B-I-B-L-E, is that the book for me, is our attempt to, to kind of encourage you to be good and faithful readers of Scripture. Don't forsake this because it seems awkward or distant. Uh, you know, lean into it. 
let it, let it be a, a kind of source for you, and not just for you, but for us, right? We do our best to present the gospel as clearly and as creatively as we can. We're not trying to make up something new. We're not trying to discover some new teaching. We're trying to, to promote the historic faith of Christianity that says these things about a God who's a good creator, about the, God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who lived and died, about the Spirit who empowers us, and about the, the goodness and the grace and the mercy that comes from that. And so as we opened at the beginning, we'll say at the end, in the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. Yeah.